The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church, and uh, we're continuing this morning our study in 1 John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first half of verse 8, okay? And we're going to, and we're going to, and we're going to be talking about who is the devil. Now, you spouses, stop pointing to each other, okay? That's not what we're talking about. All right, we saw last week that this passage, 1 John 3, 4-9, through 9, consists of two short parallel sections each of which contains three things. And we looked at the first section last week. Uh, The definition of sin is found in verse 4 and 8. We looked at verse 4, which says sin is lawlessness. Today we want to look at sin is of the devil. Secondly, it's a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. And last week we looked at verse 5, Christ came to take away sins. Uh, Next week we'll look at Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And the third part is the statement about the implications of Christ's work for the Christian life. Um, We looked at verse 6 last week, no one who abides in Christ sins, and we'll look at 9 in a couple weeks, no one who is born of God sins. So this morning, let's uh, jump into verse 8 and see if we can get through half the verse today. Alright? It says, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. Now, our text in the Christian Standard Bible says the one who commits sin is of the devil. The ESV says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, as I've been saying, the idea of practice is not really a good translation. It's simply the one who commits sin is of the devil. Now, we saw in verse 4 that everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. And the word lawlessness is anomia, which I said has the idea of unbelief. So we could say the one who does not believe is of the devil. I think we could, that kind of gives us the idea of what that text is trying to say. I think that John has the secessionists, the opponents in view when he says this, because they didn't believe in the incarnation. They were denying that Christ came in the flesh, so they were not believing. They are of the devil, at least in the sense that they're rejecting Yeshua as the Savior. Now, it says the devil has sinned from the beginning. This is the first time we see the word devil in this epistle. It's from the Greek adjective diabolos. Now, since we haven't run across this before, let's uh, talk about it a little. First of all, diabolos, Strong's Greek Dictionary says it means... False accuser, devil slanderer. Thayer's Greek definition says this. One, prone to slander, slanderous, accusing falsely. Secondly, metaphorically applied to a man who by opposing the cause of God may be said to act the part of the devil or side with him. Now what do these definitions tell us? Remember, I said this is an adjective. Remember English class, what an adjective is? 
It's a word or phrase naming an attribute added to or grammatically related to a noun to modify or describe it. So devil here is not talking about a person. It's more of a function, an office. We see that with, you know, what does it mean? It means prone to slander. It means slanders, accusing falsely. So it's the idea of an adversary or a challenger. It describes a particular action or role. Now in John's Gospel, Yeshua calls Judas a devil in 670. He's a slander. He accuses his distractors of having the devil as their ideological father. He adds that he was a murderer from the beginning in John 8.44. Now I want to try to answer two questions about the devil in our study this morning. Number one, who or what is the devil? And secondly, when is the beginning that the devil sinned from? It says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. What beginning are we talking about here? So basically, our study this morning is going to be on devilology, okay? I want to try to build a, you know, a biblical systematic theology here on who is the devil. What is his role? What does he do? I think if you ask most Christians, they would probably say that the devil is Yahweh's equal and opposite. Now that's far from the truth, but I think that's how most Christians view the devil. Alright? He's the archenemy of Yahweh. Well, let's look at the Scriptures and see if we can understand who the devil is. Let's start at the very beginning. Alright? I mean, the beginning way back. Okay? <laughs> In the far reaches of eternity past, Yahweh always existed. So there never was a time when there was not Yahweh. He's always there. The eternal God of the Bible has always existed, and He always will. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As El Olam Yahweh is known as the everlasting God. Now, the Hebrew name Alam means forever, perpetual, old, or ancient, implying that there is an infinite future and past. Now, the principles of the laws of nature, the beginning of time, and the first existence of the world are all the results of Yahweh, the Creator, who possesses never-ending wisdom and power. He was before all time, and all worlds. Now that's hard, I think, for us to wrap our brains around not having a beginning because we've had a beginning, right? So to think that always, ever, there was God, okay? He always existed from eternity. And when I say Yahweh, I'm talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then, at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods. Okay, you got that? Lesser gods, because He created them. He's the Creator. He created lesser gods and angels, and He created them to be part of His divine family, His divine council. Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything, including other gods. We see this in Colossians 1.16. For by Him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, all things here, 
occurs six times in Colossians 1, 15-20, and it literally means the all, or the totality, referring to creation. Yeshua designed all creation, and it says visible, you know what that is, the things we can see, that's earthly kingdoms, that's earthly empires, and invisible. Now this, I think, is talking about divine principalities and powers, other gods. The words here, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, probably refer to spirit beings, not human government. In part, this refers to the hierarchy of spiritual beings that God created. So, who are these rulers or powers in heavens? I believe they're divine beings who were part of Yahweh's divine council. Now, I think the idea of divine counsel is strange to most Christians because they just don't seem to understand it. And most people simply think God is ruling, Satan is opposing Him, and that's all there is. Yahweh is seen as the only good deity, and Satan is seen as the only bad deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, we see a divine counsel. In other words, a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. All ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council. But the Hebrew Bible describes the divine council under the authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, while the divine council of Israel and its neighbors share significant features, the divine council of the Israelite religion is distinct in many important ways. Yahweh is a unique God, but He's not alone. Now, the idea of a pantheon of gods and a heavenly council is witnessed by various literary genres of the Hebrew Bible. It's mentioned in the historical parts, it's mentioned in narratives, poetic passages, prophetic visions, temple liturgy, apocalyptic literature, and it also transcends the historical timeline. The concept and imagery of the divine council is woven throughout the pages of the Hebrew Bible. For example, let's look at Psalm 82. Now, I was asked many, many years ago by a friend of mine, what do you think of the Divine Council? And I'm like, don't think anything. I've never heard of it. Give me a scripture. And he said, Psalm 82. So I said, okay. So I went and looked up Psalm 82. It says, a Psalm of Asaph. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. I'm like, got nothing. Okay? You know why I got nothing? Because the New American Standard obscures this text. The word God there, God takes His stand, is Elohim. The word rulers at the end there is Elohim. So why do they translate one as God and one as rulers? The ESV translates this this way, a Psalm of Asaph. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Now see, that's a lot different. But you don't get that. Again, the translations can trip us up. And that's why I encourage you to use several translations you know, so you can get a, a good picture. The word council here is the Hebrew adah, and it means a stated assemblage, specifically a concourse or general family. The term divine council is used, in the Hebrew, is used by Hebrew Bible scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, it is the consensus among A&E scholars, ancient Near East scholars, 
that every society from the time of the ancient Samaritans to the time of the Babylonians and the Greeks believed in a pantheon of gods. Now, here's the distinction between the biblical idea of this pantheon and the pagan. In the pagan concepts, all the gods are fighting to be head. They're killing each other. They're battling in the pantheon. In the Israelite conception, Yahweh sits supreme and that's the end of it. Okay, There's no one to challenge Him. There's no one to try to take His place. Although we'll see that Satan did you know, make an effort there. But He is the Creator God. Alright, so in this text, God and rulers are both the Hebrew word Elohim. means God. This is speaking of the divine council, or I like the way Daniel, Daniel uses the word watchers. I think that just gives us a different picture. They are, these are gods, they're watchers, as Daniel calls them. Now, we get a good picture of the divine council, I think, in 1 Kings 22. Watch this. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay, so this is a throne room scene. We're entering into the throne room of God. And he says, I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. And watch what happens. The whole heavenly army was standing by him at his right and at his left. So here's Yahweh, and he's surrounded by this council of gods. And Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this, and another was saying that. So all the gods are talking about, hey, how are we going to get, you know, how are we going to get them? What are we going to do to Ahab? Then a spirit came forward, stood in Yahweh's presence and said, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said, how? He said, I'll go and I'll become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. In other words, I'll tell all his prophets to tell him, you're going to win the battle. Go, go get him. You're going to be victorious over it. So God says, then he said, you will certainly entice him and prevail. Go do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. You go do it. So here is one of the gods in the pantheon has this idea and God says, yeah, that sounds good. Go do it. Alright? So we see this council of gods, this pantheon, so to speak. Now, we don't know at what point in time Yahweh created these other gods. The Scripture really doesn't tell us. But we see that these gods were created. They were in existence before Yahweh created the world. So at some point in eternity, he creates these gods, and then later, he creates the world in which we live. Look what Job has to say. God is talking to Job here. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God is being sarcastic here, okay? He's given Job a hard time because Job thought he knew something. Who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now watch this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here, morning star and sons of God, their names are divine beings. They are members of the divine council. Now many people want to argue and they want to say, well, sons of God refers to humans. Explain this text to me. How are there humans there at creation when God created the world? These, these pre-creation humans? Sons of God is a title for gods. Morning star is a title for gods. 
All right? So before the creation of the earth and man, you have Yahweh and other lesser created divine beings that make up this divine council. So Yahweh always existed. He had no beginning. He has no end. But at a point in time, He created other divine beings as His counselor family. Now with that in mind, let's look at the background of the Tanakh and see what the Tanakh has to say. All right, Let's start there and see if we can get a picture and then we'll work our way into the New Testament. We're working on this idea of devil. All right, Who is this devil? So let me ask you this. When do you think is the first time in the Tanakh that we see the word devil? What? Garden of Eden? <laughs> Thank you, Veronica. You won't find devil in there at all because devil is Greek. It's diabolos. It's not in the Old Testament. That was a trick question. Okay, kind of a trick question there. But if you look in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, you'll find it there. Okay, but yeah, okay, you were talking about right. <laughs> right. All right, devil is diabolos. The Tanakh is written in Hebrew, all right? Now, instead, the, the Septuagint uses the word Satan. Now, guess what word that is, right? <laughs> now, let me just say this here about Satan. Satan is one of the few words that English has borrowed from the Hebrew. Satan is the Hebrew word. Satan is the English word, all right? So we basically just took the word, the Hebrew word Satan, and brought it into English. Now what bugs me about that is we use Satan's name from the Hebrew, but we don't use Yeshua's name from the Hebrew. We changed his name, but we keep on to Satan's. That doesn't make any sense to me, but you know that's one of my hobby horses I have to ride here and there. So, All right, now let me ask you this question, not a trick question. Where would you find the first use of Satan in the Scriptures? Genesis. Do you have any other? I see that hand. Hands all over. Hands all over. No. No, it's not Job. Most Christians would probably say Genesis. The Garden of Eden, right? Go read that text. See if you see Satan in there. Okay, you see serpent. You don't know who that serpent is. Right? How do you know who the serpent is? Huh? Well, other scripture. Can I get a little narrowed down a little more? All right. We know that that serpent in Genesis 3 is the devil or Satan. We know that because Revelation 12 9 tells us. But let's not take Revelation and read it back in yet. We're, we're just strictly in the Tanakh right now. Okay? So let's be careful not to read New Testament theology back in the Tanakh. Let's just develop a theology of Satan or the devil from the Tanakh itself. So, where's the first use of Satan? Satan in the Bible. Numbers 22. All right, watch. Numbers 22. So Balaam, you know the story of Balaam. He rose in the morning and he saddles his donkey and he went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of Yahweh stood, his, took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now, he was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. You see Satan there? Adversary. Right, good. You're paying attention. All right, you know what that word means, right? Adversary here. Well, let me ask you, in this text, who is the adversary? The angel of Yahweh 
is the Satan in this text. So the very first use of Satan in the Hebrew Bible refers to Yahweh. Okay? You got that? That kind of rock your idea of Satan maybe? That surprise you a little? Let me explain this to you. The Hebrew word Satan is not a proper noun in the Tanakh. As such, the term is not used to refer to a cosmic archenemy of Yahweh. Satan isn't a proper name, but it's a function or office with the primary meaning of adversary or challenger. Satan describes a particular action or role, often in the context of opposition or judgment. So here, the angel of Yahweh is his opponent. He's opposing Balaam. Next use, Numbers 22-32. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Again, angel of Yahweh is the Satan in this text because he opposes Balaam on his journey to curse Israel. Now from these two verses, we see the word Satan doesn't carry an all-exclusive evil meaning because both Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh are called Satan. Now, I don't think you know most people are kind of surprised Yahweh is called Satan. That's right, in these texts. Let's look at another one. All right, First Chronicles 21.1 And Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, you may be thinking, there it is. See, this is God's archenemy in this verse. We see him finally, right? Well, the translators certainly thought so. And the translator is really screwed up here, okay? Because who is Satan here? Well, we don't know from here, but if you look at a parallel passage, 2 Samuel 24.1, again, the angel of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Now watch this. We got Satan, he's against Israel, he incited David to number Israel. Second Samuel, we got Yahweh against Israel, he incited David, number Israel. You get that they're parallel texts? Huh? Talking about the same thing. And it should have, in, in First Chronicles, should have been translated adversary. But they, I don't know why they put Satan in there. They try to stay away from that name, that use of it. You know, when it's dealing with the Lord, because they see that, but here they, they messed up. So these two passages can be harmonized in the, in the Tanakh, and we understand clearly that this is talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who incited David to number Israel. All right. There are, excuse me, 27 uses of Satan in the Tanakh. We've seen three of them, and they refer to Yahweh, the first three. Seven uses of Satan refer to human adversaries. I'm going to show you one. You have to look the rest up for yourself. Okay? 1 Kings 11.14 And Yahweh raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. So here Satan is Hadad. He's an Edomite. A human adversary, not a supernatural being. You may be thinking, why is the word Satan used to refer to human beings and the angel of Yahweh? Well, the answer is, like I've already said, that the term Satan means accuser or challenger. It's described as a particular action or role, not a person. Now, all the rest of the uses of Satan in the Bible 
in the Tanakh are found in Job and Zechariah. There's two in Zechariah. All the rest of them are in Job. You're familiar with that, right? Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job show two instances of the divine council comprised of the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, gathering in heavenly meeting of the council. Now think of the council as we're looking through these verses, okay? Chapter 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's the council, they came to present themselves before Yahweh. So Yahweh's council's coming in a meeting. And Satan came along with them. Is that strange? Well, not if he's one of the council members. It's not, right? Then Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, Yahweh, and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. All right, let's jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, again, they're coming back to present themselves before Yahweh, a council meeting, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. Now, Satan is used 14 times in Job. And people think, well, this is where we see Yahweh's arch enemy, right? No. No, not at all. But hang on a minute. Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser writes this. The Hebrew word Satan is not a proper noun in the Old Testament. As such, the term was not used to refer to a cosmic arch enemy of God. A brief consideration of the Hebrew grammar helps explain why. Like English, Hebrew does not attach the definite article the to proper personal nouns. For example, English speakers do not refer to themselves or to other persons with the phrase the Tom or the Janet. I mean, not normal people anyway, right? Yeah, I was talking to the Kevin the other day, and he's, you know. No, you, you don't, we don't say that, okay? And neither does Hebrew. However, most of the 27 occurrences of Satan in the Hebrew Bible include the definite article. Essentially reading the Satan. For example, all occurrences in the book of Job include the definite article. All right, so all the mentions of Satan are ha-satan, the Satan, which means the adversary. So Satan's not a name here. It's a particular action or role. So here we see that ha-satan is used for one of the divine council members. And here we have the term sons of God, which is one of the names of the divine council. And we see this in... Deuteronomy 32.8, talking about the divine council. This helps us, I think, understand it a little better. This is a, these are key verses. It says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Now, he's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the nations. The Lord gave the nations their inheritance. When did He do that? Genesis 10 lists the table of nations. And it lists 70 of them. And then, God gave these lesser gods, 70 of them, put them over those nations. So every nation has a God ruling over it. It says, when He gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided up mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So you got 70 sons of God, you got 70 nations. And that's why, you know, in, in that time period, they viewed gods as regional. You know, remember they're fighting Israel and they go, well, he's a god of the mountains, so we'll beat him in the valleys. Or, you know, they, you had a little god and was over the region. So these gods, God divided them up. And he gave them to these gods because they kept disobeying him. They wouldn't follow him, so he just said, I'm done. That's enough. I'm through with all you people. And he gave them to these different gods. 
Now, then he chose a new people for himself, and we get to Genesis 12, he chose Abraham. And he starts with Israel. All over again, because he's tired of the nation. Alright? Now, notice in our text, Job, um, <clears throat> that these sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. Now, present themselves before Yahweh is a divine council where the sons of God are coming to report to the king, Yahweh, and Satan comes with to this meeting. But from the text, we can't really tell. Is he one of the divine council members? Is he not? I think he seems to be. And the vast majority of Old Testament scholars who are experts in the field of A&E literature conclude that what we see here is Job, in Job, is that Satan is one of the members of the divine council of Yahweh. So what we see here is not Yahweh's arch enemy, but a member of the council who had some sort of a role as kind of a heavenly court prosecutor. Now, in the dictionary of the Old Testament, wisdom and poetry and writings, the section on Satan says this, Though it is common for Satan's job to be portrayed as seeking out human failings, it is God's policies that they are that the true focus of the challenge, Job's character, is only the test case. In that vein, the existence of disinterested righteousness and the effect of a reward system on a person's motives are both legitimate issues. God neither scoffs at the challenge nor discounts the legitimacy of the question. You know, when Satan comes and he's you know, challenging, so God goes ahead, he says, what the Satan is in fact challenging is God's blueprint for divine human relations. In other words, the Satan is questioning the validity of moral order in which the pious unfailingly prosper. The test of true righteousness would be worship without the promise of reward. So he's saying, does Job serve you for not? He only serves you because you gave him all. Take it away and see if he still serves you. In this sense, we might consider a loose analogy to someone designated as parliamentarian in a group organized by Robert's Rule of Order. His, her job is to identify the procedures that are out of order. The role is intended to serve, not disrupt. So the question is, that Satan is bringing here before God is, can human beings have a disinterested righteousness? Can they have a disinterested faith? That is, can they believe in God without looking for rewards or without fearing, punish, fearing punishment? Can they just serve you for who you are? Even more specifically, are human beings capable, here's the question he's putting before him, are human beings capable in the midst of unjust suffering of continuing to assert their faith in God and speak of God without expecting a return? And he says, does, does Job serve you for not? Look at all you've given him. Take it away, he'll curse you to your face. In other words, human beings don't love you for who you are. They love you for what you do. So God says, well, go ahead and check it out. See how he responds. I'm glad I wasn't me in the trial. But that seems to be what's going on there. So he's not evil in this sense. Alright? So in Job, the Satan is not the archenemy of Yahweh. He's a heavenly court prosecutor. And there's really nothing intrinsically evil about the author's portrayal of Satan in Job. There's no tempting, there's no possession, there's no evil intent. You might think that's different because, well, he's got some bad stuff happening. 
But that doesn't fit most people's view of Satan. What's interesting in the story of Job is that Job never blamed Satan. Who did he blame for what happened to him? Yahweh. Watch. Job 1, 20 and 22. Then Job arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground and he worshipped. Those are all expressions of grief. He fell on the ground and he worshipped. It doesn't say he fell on the ground and complained. He fell on the ground and he murmured. He fell on the ground and he cursed God. Why do you let all this stuff happen to me? This guy in the midst of the most incredible tragedy, you can lost all his financial, all his children, everything's wiped out, and he gets down and he worships. And see, Satan's wrong because he's not serving God for not. He's worshiping God for who he is. And he says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked shall I return. Yahweh gave. Yahweh took it away. Then he says this, Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job here uses the covenant name Yahweh and says Yahweh has given it. Yahweh has taken it away. So he attributes his losses to Yahweh. He attributes the death of his ten children to Yahweh, not the Sabaeans, not the Chaldeans, not the natural disaster. You know what Job seems to understand? He seems to understand the sovereignty of Yahweh. He sees all things coming from his hand, no matter who brings them. Yes, the Sabaeans brought them, but God's behind them. Yes, the Chaldeans did that, but God's behind them. Yeah, that natural disaster happened, but God's behind that. And he worships. Incredible text. It's just an incredible... But what people do with this text is so amazing. How they twist and distort and... Oh, my word. The preacher right next door over here, he was preaching on this text. And, you know, he said that Job, when he said this stuff, the Lord gave and the Lord take away, he was delusional from all the suffering he'd been through. And he said that just wasn't right. He said it wasn't right because he killed ten of his children and God never killed anybody. And I thought, hmm, I seem to remember a few places, like, how about the flood? (laughs) Oh, God never killed anybody. He killed everybody. How about Nadab and Abihu? Anybody heard of Nadab and Abihu? Sons of Aaron, they're worshiping God. Fire comes out of heaven and they're done. How about Korah? The ground opens up, swallows him and his buddies and shuts right back up. And this guy, God knew, you know, that, that's just wrong. Well, look what it says right there. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with it. Job didn't do a thing wrong. Job was totally righteous. You get to the end of the book, and God says to Job's comforters, you did wrong. Unlike my servant Job. My servant Job says of me what is right. And he says, God did this. You say that in a Pentecostal church, they would string you up by your heels, okay? Because, you know, God never does anything they don't like. All right? But that's what the text says. All right, there's two more uses of Satan in the Tanakh, both in Zechariah. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan, Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's the accuser. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So in both Zechariah and Job, Satan includes the definite article, Hasatan, which grammatically rules out the use of a proper name. 
Instead, it should be understood, the accuser. In Zechariah, Satan functions just like he does in Job. He is standing there and he's accusing the high priest Joshua. Alright? Now, bottom line, there's no passages in the Tanakh, your Old Testament, where the word Satan refers to Yahweh's divine archenemy. None. He's not a bad guy in the Tanakh. These verses that we looked at in the Tanakh blow away the assumption that the technical term Satan always applies to the same supernatural being, a single Satan. Because we saw it referred to Yahweh, referred to human beings, and referred to people, members of the divine council. Several different beings. Alright? Now, when we move out of the Tanakh, before we get to the New Testament, there's what's called intertestamental literature. Okay, that's literature that's written in between the Testaments. Make sense? <laughs> and it's called, sometimes it's called Second Temple Literature, uh, which includes the Pseudepigrapha, which are books written by Jews between Malachi and the time of Yeshua. And in that time, things begin to change. In this literature, the Pseudepigrapha, Satan begins to take on an evil persona. We also see that there are many different Satans in this literature. Now, the word pseudepigrapha means falsely ascribed writings. And it refers to a work that falsely claims to be written by a specific author. All right? Now, in case you think that because these writings are falsely named, therefore they're of no importance to us, that's not the idea. They're just, they try to stick a name of importance on these so someone will think, hey, this, we better pay attention to this. All right? Let me read you a passage from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that helps us. I think, get a better perspective on the pseudepigrapha. Now, the Lexham Study Bible, you can get free. Uh, it's online, and it's an excellent resource. And in the dictionary, it says this. Although they are called the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, these texts are important for New Testament scholarship as well, because the books of the New Testament were not written in isolation from history, literature, and culture of their time. Do you understand what that's saying? We talk a lot about context, right? We think context of the chapter, context of the book. This is context of the culture. These writings were influential on the writers of the New Testament. In fact, New Testament authors were familiar with portions of the literature. For example, the Epistle of Jude contains references to two writings from the Pseudepigrapha. First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. Second Peter, which was written after Jude and borrows many elements from Jude, alludes to the pseudepigrapha but without explicit reference. This relates directly to the issue of canon development and hermeneutics, offering a glimpse into the New Testament world's use of sources outside the Scripture. So the writers who wrote our New Testament, they used these pseudepigrapha writings when they wrote the Bible. That should give us an idea of their importance for Bible study. Now, near the end here, I'm going to quote several verses from the Pseudepigrapha because I think it helps us get an understanding of some things. Now, this intertestamental literature, which would include the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is the 13 books the Catholics have between the Old and New Testament. All right? It includes the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it includes Pseudepigrapha. They say considerably more about Satan than the Tanakh does. Ancient conceptions of Satan and demons developed during this Second Temple period, and works from that period like First Enoch, Jubilees, and the life of Adam and Eve, 
increasingly focused on the character of Satan as the celestial archenemy of God. These works also retold the stories of Israel's history and recounted Satan's influence in certain events. First Enoch is fundamental in the development of Satan as an evil celestial being with a contingent of evil spirits under his command. First Enoch chapter 69, verses 4-12, through 12, there's a list there of five Satans. He names different names. They're all referring to Satan, but five different names. The assumption of Moses in chapter 10, verse 1, and the book of Jubilees, chapter 2, verse 23-29, through may be the earliest evidence for the term Satan being employed as a proper name. In those texts, it's not the Satan, it's Satan. It's a proper name. In his book, When Giants Roam the Earth, Brian Gadawa says this, Second Temple and Qumran literature show an evil divine figure rising to prominence as the primary adversary of the people of God, along with a host of demons. Beside the term, the adversary, Satan, and the accuser, devil, this figure was variously called Belial, Belier, Mastema, Samael. All right, <clears throat> so we see quite a change in the view of Satan in this intertestamental literature. And this is how the Jews viewed Satan and demons. All right, we're not going to go into any of that right now, but let's jump into the New Testament. We're all familiar with that. And right away, we run into Matthew 4, 1. Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So as soon as the New Testament starts, we see the devil. And we see Satan. They're adversaries of Yeshua and the people of God. Now, most New Testament references to demon possession appear in the Gospels. And they represent an outburst of satanic opposition to Yahweh's work of Christ. Please understand this. There's a lot of disagreement about this. But demon possession, I think, is something that happened only during the time of Christ and the apostles for the purpose of manifesting the power of Christ over the demonic world. And people today are still seeing demons everywhere. No, they, they manifest themselves because there's a battle going on and that gave the opportunity of Christ and His apostles to show power over the demonic world. I don't think today you have to worry about demons. All right. Now the New Testament shows a developing picture of Satan as the archenemy of God. Extra-biblical works written prior to and contemporary with the New Testament documents parallel this development. In the New Testament, the word devil is used 32 times, Satan 33 times, Belial is used once, and Beelzebub is used seven times. We see various titles for Satan. He's classified as a dragon. He's the serpent. He's the evil one. He's a tempter. Uh, he prowls like a lion, Peter says. According to Paul, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the leader of the demonic realm. We see that in Ephesians 2.2. 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So people in Paul's day believed spirits existed in the space located between heaven and earth. And on several occasions, Satan is called Beelzebub. We see that in Matthew 12. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So Beelzebub, there's a lot of disagreement on what exactly it means. Lord of the house, Lord of the heights. It's like the phrase, kingdom of the air. Beelzebub probably means that Satan is perceived as being in charge of the demons. He's ruling this group. 
One thing that really strikes those who study the Bible is how radically things change between the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Bible, and the New, beginning of the New. Like I said, you, if you read the Old, you don't see anything about Satan being this, you know, this bad person there tearing things up. But you get to the New Testament, and you have Satan and his demons in an all-out war with Yahweh and his people. Yeshua pictures Satan as a heavenly armed prince dwelling with his demonic subjects in a fortified place. Satan, along with his demons, exercised so much power over the nations that he is termed the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. Yeshua says, now is judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now, here we have to drill down for a little bit. Did Satan rule the whole world? I mean, the text says that, right? Well, does world mean everybody on the whole globe, planet, plane? Well, I think here the word world refers to their known world, which would have been the Roman Empire. This is the word, this is the world that Satan offered to Yeshua if he would worship him. Notice what we see in Daniel. Daniel 10:20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Now here we see divine beings, hosts of heaven, allotted authority over pagan nations. They're princes, they're rulers. They're battling with the archangels Gabriel and Michael. Now some Second Temple non-canonical Jewish texts illustrate an ancient tradition of understanding this interpretation of the gods of the nations as real spirit beings that rule over nations. For example, in Jubilees, pseudepigraphal work says this, there are many nations and many people, and they all belong to him. But over all of them, he caused spirits to rule so that they might lead them astray from following him. But over Israel, he did not cause any angel or spirit to rule because he alone is their ruler and he will protect them. So God's you know, the ruler of Israel, but all, all these nations, he put these people. So listen, if Persia and Greece had a prince or a watcher behind them, that Michael was fighting with, do you think maybe Rome had a watcher over it? Do we see Michael fighting with any kind of watcher in Revelation 12? Let's go there. Now war arose. Where's this war? In heaven. Okay? You've got to get the location. That's important, all right? The war is in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon. We know who that dragon is. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now here we get the ancient serpent, there's from the garden, who was called the devil and Satan. Alright, so there's a spiritual battle going on here. goes on, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And the angels were thrown down with him. Now, he wasn't deceiving everybody that ever lived because there was other Satans out there, other rulers, spiritual rulers over different places. But this war is taking place in heaven. And Michael is depicted as warring on behalf of Israel, and he's called Israel's protector in Daniel 12.1. Michael is the patron, patron angel of Israel. So we have Israel's protector fighting Rome's prince, Satan. It seems as though the Satan has moved from adversary in the divine council to the spiritual power that is behind Rome. 
Now, most scholars of Revelation teach that the beast represents Rome and the dragon that gives power to the beast is Satan. It seems as if this watcher, now known as Satan, has turned against Yahweh and is ruling Rome trying to destroy Yeshua and His people. So this is the one who's called the devil or Satan. He's a watcher and he turned bad. Alright, now we know who the devil is. He was created by God. He was part of divine counsel. He went bad somewhere along the line. And he sinned. Now, what we need to figure out is, when did he sin? And that's the next question. For the devil has sinned, he says, from the beginning. So, what beginning? When did he sin? Well, it's really difficult theologically to determine when he sinned because the, the biblical timeline doesn't really lay that out. Now, Luke 10.18 says, Yeshua said, He saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. But it doesn't tell us exactly when. I think the devil sinned. Let me give you my view here. All right, and then I'll try to tell you why I think that. I think the devil sinned sometime after Yahweh created Adam and Eve. So he's fine. God creates Adam and Eve. But he fell before their fall. So from the creation of Adam and Eve to the fall, sometime in the middle there, I think is when the sin happened. And I think Satan's fall had to do with Adam. Now, we don't really see this in the Bible. But if we look at pseudepigraphal literature, we get some understanding of this. Um, in Genesis, we learn that after Yahweh created Adam and Eve, He brought them into the garden. He created them outside of the garden. The garden is Yahweh's throne room. It's His dwelling place. And so, He creates them and He brings them into the garden. He brings them into an intimate relationship with Himself. Look what Genesis 3.8 says. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, they're in this beautiful garden with Yahweh. And Yahweh's walking around with them. They walk with them. They dwelt in His presence. Eden is where Yahweh lives. It's where He issues decree. He is with the heavenly hosts in the garden who existed before humanity did. This is the divine council. This is the family of God. And Adam is there with them. You know what happens next, right? Man is tempted, and he sins. Now let me ask you this. How long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned? The Bible makes it sound like they brought them in the garden and right away they sinned, right? I mean, there's, you don't get any kind of timeline from Scripture. It, just, it seems instantaneous. It's like as soon as God said, don't eat that tree, you ran over and ate it. You know, That's what you get. But the book of Jubilee says this. Jubilees 3.17. And after the compilation of seven, completion of seven years, which he had completed there, seven years exactly, in the second month, on the 17th at 8 a.m., <laughs> day of the month, the serpent came and approached the woman. Now, like I said, the biblical text sounds like he's just sinned right away, but Jubilee says he made it seven years. I'm like, Yay! That makes me feel better about Adam, you know? I mean, you're with God! At least it took him a little time before he fell. Now, Jubilees is a pseudepigraphal work. It's sometimes called the Lesser Genesis. It was written in the 2nd century before Christ, and it records the, the account of biblical history of the world from creation to Moses. So this is the Lesser Genesis. Now, who tempted Eve and why? A serpent, not a snake, okay? A serpent, all right? In the text in Genesis, it says it was a serpent. We know that. And we know that Revelation 12.9 12, says the devil and Satan were the serpent. That tells us who the serpent was. 
But Eve was not tempted by a snake. You see the pictures. You've got a snake wrapped around a tree, and she's talking. You know, there's an apple dangling there, and there's serpents talking. You think Eve would talk to a, a snake? Does that make any sense? I don't think so. Yeah. I think who she's talking to there is a divine being, a watcher. All right? And serpent is a triple entendre. And it has different meanings. It can mean a serpent. It can also mean shining. You know, and that's the idea, luminescent. Divine beings are luminescent. And so we have this luminescent being here, whether it be a council member, divine being. It wasn't an animal. It's in the throne room. And this, I believe, was a throne room guardian, a seraph, a serpentine being. They're part of the divine council in Eden, but they deceive humanity to get rid of them, to get rid of humans removed from Eden, from Eden, from Yahweh's counsel and family. Now you got to ask why. Why does this divine being want man kicked out of Eden? I think the scriptures tell us it was pride or jealousy. We'll look at that in a minute. Okay, here we have the Garden of Eden. God's there with his counsel, and they're just having a great time together. All right, God creates man and brings man in, and they're all like, who's this guy? Why is he coming in our, you know, we don't want him in here. Right? Let's look at a pseudepigraphal work called The Life of Adam and Eve. Now listen, this is a great work. If you want, if you want a, some fascinating reading, read The Life of Adam and Eve. Here's one thing that I got out of it beyond anything else. Sin will destroy you. It talks about Adam and Eve and the misery that they go through after they're kicked out of Eden. Alright? It elaborates on the the motive of Satan and the role of the fall. All right, let's look at chapter 14. It says this. And Michael went out and called all the angels. Worship the image of God as the Lord God has commanded. What's he mean? Who's the image of God? Man was created what? As the image of God. So they're telling them to worship Adam. And Michael himself worshiped first. Then he called me and said, Worship the image of the Lord God. And I answered, it's not for me to worship Adam. And since Michael kept urging me to worship, I said, why do you urge me? I will not worship an inferior and younger being than I. I am senior in the creation. Before he was made, I already was made. It's his duty to worship me. I want some worship. I'm not bound down to some man. Chapter 14 goes on, when the angels who were under me heard this, they refused to worship him. we got a rebellion going on. And Michael said, Worship the image of God. But if you will not worship Him, the Lord God will be angry with you. And I said, Satan saying, If He be angry with me, I will set my seat above the stars of heaven and will be like the highest. Does that sound familiar to you? Where does it come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was safe. That was safe. Alright, Sharon, you got it. Isaiah 14. Look. He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will be on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now, Satan is told to worship Adam, and he will not. He says, I'll set my seat above the stars of heaven. I'll be like the highest. So consequently, God expelled the devil and his angels from heaven to under the earth. Now, most scholars seem to believe that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, on one level, are describing a taunt against the king, the king of Babylon. That's who's directed here. But behind the story of the king of Babylon is an ancient story that reflects their story. In other words, Satan fell because of pride. You're doing the same thing he did. 
So this is, you see a double issue here where he's directing it towards the king, but behind that is the story of the fall of the devil, I believe. Now, the devil explained to Adam in chapter 16 of the life of Adam and Eve this. He says, the Lord God was angry with me. Why? Because he wouldn't worship him, right? And he banished me and my angels from our glory. In other words, we got kicked out of the presence of God. And on your account were we expelled. <laughs> he sounds just like Adam. The woman made me do it. He said, the man made me do it. You know, they're <laughs> blaming somebody else. On your account, we were expelled from our abode into this world and hurled to the ground. Straight away, we were overcome with grief. In other words, wow, I don't like being out of the presence of God. Since we had been robbed of such great glory, and we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. You're hanging out in the presence of God. And watch this. And with guile, I cheated your wife. And through her action, caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as I have been driven out of my glory. Now in 1st Enoch, the temptation of Eve is attributed to Gadriel. Here it's attributed to Satan. And the link between Satan and the serpent is also attested to in this book. The life of Adam and Eve and the book of 2nd Enoch, both texts state that it was the devil who led Eve astray. Now the life of Adam and Eve, chapter 33, states this. Adam is speaking here, and Adam says, Moreover, the Lord God gave us two angels to guard us, Adam and Eve, the hour came when the angels ascended to worship in the sight of God. So these angels are guarding them, but they leave to go worship God. Immediately, the enemy, the devil, found an opportunity while the angels were absent. And the devil led your mother astray to eat the unlawful and forbidden tree, and she ate, and she gave it to me. So, the divine being, the devil, or Satan, seems to have been jealous of man. Because he got kicked out because he wouldn't worship him. So now he's like, you're in glory and I'm kicked out. I don't like this, so I'm going to destroy you. And so he goes after him to get him to sin, to get him kicked out of the cosmic mountain. Now the devil's sinning from the beginning, I think goes back to the Genesis 1-4, through where the devil tempted the first couple, and their sin spread to Cain. And later you'll see in chapter 3, we're going to tie Cain into this. He was the first murderer. And I think the Lord hints at this in the fourth gospel where he says that devil was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. So this is the time period here. In the very beginning, after man is created, the devil falls because he won't worship him. Then he wants to get him thrown out. So that is who the devil is. He's a divine being that God created. He was part of the divine council. He fell because of his pride. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. God threw him out, and then he wanted to get man kicked out of there, so that's what he did. Now next week, we're going to look at the rest of that verse that says Yeshua came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. It's amazing that the text clearly says Yeshua came to destroy the works of the devil, and people today are so still worried about... When it talks about he came to destroy, it's talking about his first coming. Alright? So we'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I pray You'd give us wisdom and insight into it, Lord. Give us the heart of Bereans that we may search to see if these things are so. Lord, we realize that the pseudepigraphal works are not Scripture, but they are the context that the Bible was written in. Help us to understand the minds of the writers of Scripture that we may understand what they're saying, Lord. Thank You for Your grace to us, Lord. Thank You for Your provision, and I thank You ahead of time for next week the fact that You have destroyed 
the works of the devil. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? That was Satanology. Everybody got that, right? Okay. I got a, I got a question from Jack in Italy. <laughs> Jack. Hi, Jack. We all miss you, buddy. Uh, he said, I got a question for you. Quick question. Who or what are the lesser gods? Then he says, would this include Poseidon, Zeus, Hades, etc.? Good question, Zach. And yes, see, I think that all mythology comes out of reality. And I think these, these myths of these half-gods, half-men, these you know hybrid beings, yes, I think that the Bible talks about that in Genesis 6. Now, those were Roman versions, you know, or Greek versions of those gods, but yes, they were, that was, all that stuff, I think, is built on fact, okay? Now, I know the Avengers, and, you know, here's the thing, okay? If this guy, what's a, the god with the hammer? Thor. Thor. If Thor's a god, he's a pretty weak one, because he's always getting his butt kicked around by somebody. I'm like, you're god! What is the deal here? You rule! You know, he's obviously a way lesser God. You know, and that's what, you know, these, in the Bible, these divine beings, these half uh, gods, half men, were very strong and very deadly. Of course, we saw David take one down with a slingshot and a rock, all right? So, uh, but yes, Jack, all that, I think all that stuff has reality behind it, you know, in the truth of Genesis 6 and all that. All that mythology sprang from that. I think it comes from somewhere. You know, in Proverbs it says, the horse leech has two daughters saying, give, give. Well, the word there that it uses for that is a word that's used in another, I can't remember what language it is, but it means vampire. Okay, you think of leech as what? Blood sucking? Well, vampire. Alright? And why would the writer of Proverbs use a word that refers to vampires the word's not used in any place else in Scripture. But it's used of vampires. I think there's a reality. Again, behind all this, this is demonic activity. And they're talking about vampires. Like, That's interesting. He could have used any other word, but he chose one that referred to vampires. Blood-sucking beings. And he says, the horse leech has two daughters. Give, give. Interesting. No. Not today. <laughs> I think they've been put in their place. We'll talk about that next week.